read Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. The account of Saul's conversion, Saul who later became the Apostle Paul. As we read his own account of these things in chapters 22 and 26, so here Luke's account in verses 1 through 9 of Acts chapter 9. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was there, uh, and he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Let us pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you for this, your word as ever. Uh, We especially thank you this evening for the account of Saul's conversion and all that you did through him. We ask you that now through the preaching we might have a greater insight and a taste for what you were doing through that man. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if we look at what Luke is doing at this point in Acts, we see that uh, there is a series of conversions that he is recounting. There is first the account of the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8 through the ministry of Philip. And then there is the account of uh, the conversion of Saul. And following that in chapter 10, uh, there is the account of the conversion of Cornelius. Uh, so a series of conversions, each significant Uh, in their own way, especially concerning the worldwide spread of the gospel. You remember what happened at the beginning of chapter 8 with the martyrdom of Stephen and the persecution of the early church. They were spread abroad from Jerusalem. Uh, And what, what Luke is highlighting for us is what happened as the gospel spread. And he's pinpointing the power of the gospel in the case of these three individuals. In essence, he is highlighting the same basic point about the kingdom of God that Jesus highlighted to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verses 3 and 5, and that is you must be born again. You must be born again if you would enter the kingdom of God. And here is a record of three men who were born again and who entered the kingdom of God in these notable ways. It's also worth noting that just before this series in Acts chapter 8, there is the false conversion of Simon Magnus. It's fascinating to note uh, how Luke does that, as though to say, uh, notice the false before you notice the true. Here is a false conversion, but compare that, as we will, in the case of each of these men, to the true. Contrast the true with the false. So then, we have here Saul's conversion on the road to Damascus. What can we say about it? And the first thing that we can say is, or notice, is its unlikely nature. 
We look at this man and we ask, rightly, was anyone ever so unlikely to become a Christian as this man, Saul? Of all the Jews who were opposed to uh, the gospel and this early Christian movement, there was no one whose opposition was fiercer or, or, or more bitter than that of the Apostle Paul or, or the man Saul before he became Paul. Look at him here. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Or in chapter 8, verse 1, Saul was consenting to his death, that is the death of Stephen. Acts chapter 8, verse 3. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Clearly, this man Saul, Saul had, no, had no natural inclination to become a Christian. Far from it. Every fiber of his being resented the whole idea of Christianity. He hated it. And the sooner he could be rid of it, and he really did think he could be rid of it. Uh, we, we'll just gather them up and we'll throw them all in prison. That was his thought. That was his program. The sooner he could be rid of it, the better. He was as committed an opponent to Christianity as the world has ever known. And I don't think anyone uh, would care to dispute that fact. And yet, amazing to see, he became a Christian. Saul, the persecutor, became a Christian. Look at him on that road. Uh, still breathing threats and murder, now suddenly trembling and astonished, lying on the ground, struck blind by the glory of what he saw. Is it possible, I wonder, that the magnitude of his unbelief was so great that nothing less could have persuaded him? And yet it did persuade him. The glory of the Lord shone before him and he was saved. He was converted. The proudest Jew there ever was became on that day a Christian. Do you see, and this is my first point, do you see uh, how surprising conversion can sometimes be? Jonathan Edwards himself wrote a famous little work entitled A Narrative of Surprising Conversions. Well, I think it is fair to say this is the most surprising conversion there ever was. There never was anyone who was more unlikely to be a Christian or to become a Christian than Saul, the persecutor. Amazing to see the power of grace, that it can change the bitterest opponents of Christianity into its most ardent defenders in a single moment. And yet it has done so many times, has it not? Perhaps it's done so in your own case. We are left with the impression, is anyone outside of the reach of God's grace? Clearly not, if it saved Saul. Is anyone too sinful for God's grace. Again, I say clearly not. Look next at how it happened. Having seen its unlikely nature. Do you notice it didn't happen because he was he was seeking it. He wasn't like the Ethiopian there studying his Bible saying, you know, if anyone could open this up to me, maybe I'd understand Maybe I could come to a true saving understanding of the gospel. In a sense, you could say the Ethiopian was seeking it. And so Grace found him there reading his Bible and gave him all he ever wanted. But that wasn't true of Paul or Saul. 
Saul uh, knew a great deal about this, and yet he hated it. He was armed with every weapon man could devise to push back this message. Hardly then did he ever consider its embrace in his own heart. But little did he know that on that fateful day, Christ would appear to him and speak to him directly. Grace found him on that road, just as it had found the Ethiopian on another road. And what was his response? This man who was so ready to say so much and do so much now had nothing to say. And conversion is often like that. Here we are armed with our arguments and our strategies to defeat Christianity. But when Christ speaks to the soul, the arguments end. There is nothing left to say. His authority conquers all. And do you see then, in the case of Saul's conversion, the real essence of conversion is this. It is the call of Christ. What we call the effectual call or the powerful call of Jesus Christ. We realize that when he says to a sinner, come unto me or follow me, it is just as much a command as it is an invitation. And as that grace comes to us, it comes to us powerfully and it conquers all of our unbelief and our obstinance and our resistance. When Christ draws near to the soul and he has many ways of doing so and says, come unto me. So the soul will come. You see, it doesn't so much matter how this happens. That isn't my interest. I'm not saying, well, it happened in in this supernatural way. I will have something to say about that later. I'm far more interested in the real essence of what happened there. And that was this. That is that conversion is always a living encounter of the soul with the person of Jesus Christ. Now, I say that happens in many ways, but that is what always happens. It isn't that you're just reading your Bible and you say, oh, I I think I'm persuaded. I'm going to become a Christian. That is not conversion. Conversion, I say again, is a living encounter with the person of Jesus Christ, wherein he says to the soul, I am Jesus. And wherein the soul says unto him, Lord, what do you want me to do? It is, a, it is Jesus coming unto the soul and the soul's surrender to Jesus. The commanding of Jesus to give up all and to follow him and to pick up our cross. This effectual, irresistible call. Can you say he has done so for me? That is the testimony of my own soul. Jesus has spoke unto me, even as we just sung, come unto me, you you weary, and I will give you rest. I have heard his voice and I am his. That was Saul's testimony. He was a convert of Christianity. He was a Christian. Well, let us see, thirdly, something of its importance, the importance of Saul's conversion As you know, history is full of important conversions. Uh, You read the history books or or the biographies, rather, and you will have uh, you will have a record of many notable conversions, notable people. The Lord has saved and the people whom the Lord has used in notable ways after saving them, just as he did Saul. But I venture to say there has never been a conversion as important as this one, the conversion of Saul. Consider its importance first to himself. How often he reflects upon this in his sermons. I just 
I read two of these in Acts chapter 22 and 26. Uh, Or uh, let me try uh, briefly to just read uh, what he says in his epistles, his letters about his own conversion. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, first of all, verse 3, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again uh, the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve, After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he uh, was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me as by one born out of due time. For I'm the least of the apostles whom who who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace toward me. Was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Do you realize Paul is talking about his conversion there? How it was he became a Christian. Another place we find this is in Galatians chapter 1. And really, Galatians chapters 1 and 2. But let me just read a little bit from chapter 1. He says, but I I make, uh, verse 11, I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous uh, for the traditions of my fathers. Here's the old man. Here's what I was. But when it pleased God in my conversion, he is saying, when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach. Him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I grow, go up to Jerusalem, uh, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus and so on. And he continues with that story through chapter 2. Uh, lastly, uh, I th- and I think most strikingly in many ways, uh, is what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor and an insolent man. There again is his old life in Judaism, the old man. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief, he says. However, for this reason, I obtain mercy that in me first, Jesus Christ might show all along suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible to God, who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. It's obvious from those passages, and I hope to say something more about this later in the sermon at the close, that Paul's conversion was something he not only liked to talk about, but it was something that had a tremendous impression upon him. And he even saw it as something of a pattern, that God was showing in him what he would do in many others. He was showing God's the power of God's Grace to save. The power that he felt in his conversion, therefore, was felt in all that he said and did.
But we can also say something about its importance to others, not only to himself, but to others. Saul, who becomes Paul, becomes at this moment the greatest figure in the New Testament. From Acts chapter 9 until the, the end of the, of the New Testament, he, he is the most prominent figure. He was the most prominent figure from that moment on in the early church. That is why Luke is such an interest in telling us about him. Really, the book of Acts is the story of two men, Peter and Paul. And I think Paul gets the greater part. Equally here, we could say that Saul, who became Paul, became the greatest missionary the world has ever known. The man through whom, through whose labors the gospel spread in a mighty way. A man whose labors Christ used to build the church as no one else ever has. But it is the letters of Paul that are his real legacy as they fill the New Testament. And what is it that I would say about those letters in terms of their importance on this point? Well, I would especially highlight that his letters have been instrumental in the conversion of many. God has used books like Romans and Galatians to convert many. It was, as you know, through Paul's letters that Augustine and Luther were converted in notable ways. Augustine, uh, hearing it read uh, by someone, uh, Romans chapter 13, Luther reading for himself, Romans chapter 1, contemplating what the righteousness of God truly was. But they're not alone. How many can say the same? How many can say that God saved me in the same way he saved Paul? And he saved me through Paul, through his labors. I think of how Luther's commentary on Galatians has been said to save many men like Wesley and so many others. But even then, you see, it was really Paul. It was just Luther expounding Paul again that led to the salvation and giving given his own conversion. That is not surprising in the least. But let me as a last as a fourth and last point, draw lessons from Saul's conversion The first lesson is this. It is a clear instance of the potency of the gospel to save. In Romans chapter one, the apostle Paul calls it the power of God to save. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God to save. Do you understand why he spoke of it that way? It's clear. It's because it was true in his own case. He became aware of that power the moment he first believed. And he became aware of it more and more as he saw many saved under his preaching. The gospel, he realized, was a powerful force. It was indeed, it is indeed, the most powerful force in all the world. It is the only thing that's able to conquer and to vanquish, as Jesus said to him, the kingdom of darkness and bring people into the kingdom of light. And so I say again, it's so much more than intellectual persuasion. That's why Paul says, I didn't come to you with words of wisdom or, or, or persuasion, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, but in the demonstration of the spirit and of power, the power of God to save. It's not so much an intellectual persuasion. Again, it isn't that the man is sitting there reading his Bible and he decides to become a Christian. It's that grace comes to the soul. Jesus meets the soul and the man is changed in a radical way. It's a powerful experience, conversion. And so we could also speak of its dramatic nature. Conversion is a complete change. Men made new. Uh, that's how John Stott uh, entitles his commentary. He's four chapter commentator 
uh, commentary on Romans chapters 5 through 8. Men made new. That's what Paul was talking about in those chapters. And that's what happened to Paul. William Carey, the famous uh, missionary to India, aware of this said in his missionary labors, let nothing short of a radical change of heart satisfy you in your converts. Nothing less. It's amazing to consider the difference between Saul the persecutor and Paul the apostle. You see, it's something that he's reflecting on often. It's something that we ought to reflect on often. And so often, uh, those of us, especially who were converted later in life, can speak of the men and the women that we once were. And it was for this reason that Simon's so-called conversion falls short. He professed faith, he was baptized, and yet he was the same man as before. That's why it fell short. He wasn't converted. He had yet to experience the power of God to be saved indeed. If you remember what is said of him, he thought it could be bought rather than something that is bestowed graciously. Well, that's the first lesson, the power of the gospel. As seen in the conversion of Saul. So, too, does Paul or Saul's conversion persuade our hearts of the truth of Christianity. It has been said many times that nothing so proves the claims of the gospel than this man, Saul, who became Paul. There is no natural explanation for what he became, given who he was. His conversion is only plausible on the grounds of what he later claimed about the gospel. And that those claims were in fact true, and they are true. There is no way to explain the Apostle Paul except on terms of God's grace. But then we could also speak of its uniqueness, the uniqueness of Saul's conversion Paul's conversion had much in common with other conversions, but there was also something unique about it. And here I'm not referring to the supernatural element, the vision he had of Christ, though surely that too was unique and not a common feature. I mean that his conversion, in his conversion, he was like Moses, he was like the prophets and the disciples before him being called into the ministry. So that at once for him, his conversion was his call To be an apostle, which is why in some of the passages I read, uh, his call uh, into the ministry is uh, is is spoken of in the same way of his conversion. These two uh, these these two happened at the same time. That's how Paul speaks of it in Romans chapter one, Galatians chapter one, first Corinthians 15. I don't need uh, to go back and read those. And that's why, by the way, he had to see Christ as he did. That's what qualified him to be an apostle. He beheld the risen Lord. So here was Christ doing more than converting this poor sinner, though he was surely doing that. He was enlisting him into his service and beginning to show him what he must do for him. But the last lesson, which is really uh, several lessons, is what we notice from Paul's own later reflections The impression it made on his own sense of call. What his conversion clarified for him about the gospel he preached. And the first thing 
that his conversion highlighted for him, which is clear in the way he describes it, is is God's absolute sovereignty. His choice of him, he says. I do want to read Galatians 1 in this case again. He says, but when it pleased God, he is just speaking of his former life as an opponent of Christianity. And he says in verse 15, when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood when it pleased God, not when it pleased me. He was still breathing threats and murder, but it pleased God. And why did it please God? Because he had set his heart on Paul even before he was born. He says as much in those verses. It was as obvious to Paul as it it ought to be to you that no one decides to be a Christian. That isn't how salvation works. Paul was a Christian for the same reason he was an apostle. And the same reason any of you are Christians if you are. It is because God called him to this. It pleased God in his own timing even as he determined before you were born to call you unto himself. And this is a theme that stands out very clearly in all of his letters. I don't need to say that even, do I? Because, well, that's that's been the theme of the morning sermons. But are you surprised that Paul was such an ardent defender, not just of the gospel of grace and justification, but of the doctrines uh, of grace, we call them. That is the doctrines of election and God's sovereignty and so forth. Predestination. The note of sovereign grace comes out very strongly in all of his letters. And for Paul, there was no way to understand or to preach the gospel to guilty sinners apart from that consideration, which is why it's so wrong, by the way, to say, well, you've got to convert people first and then you can tell them of that. You've got to push election and God's sovereignty into the background. What you're really doing, Paul would say, is obscuring grace. No, God's grace appears in his choice of me. And that's what you'll see just the very moment you come unto him. The fact that any man is a Christian is solely because of God's choice of him. That's the first thing that was clarified in Paul's mind. But the second thing that was clarified in his mind based upon his own conversion was uh, was how... Wonderful God's grace was his conversion. I mean, magnified God's grace to him. And so often you see that in Paul. He doesn't speak of grace in lowly terms. He's always exalting it. He's speaking of the riches of God's grace, the abundance of God's grace. John Newton says in his famous hymn, Amazing Grace, how precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. This is a man for whom. Grace appeared very precious from the moment he first believed. And that is obvious in everything he did and everything he said. Paul just as easily could have said these words. And he does in his own way many times. Let me just read to you again two examples. Notice the theme that he is highlighting when he reflects on his own conversion. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse nine, for I am the least of the apostles whom who, who am who, who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But you see, as to his own worth, nothing, none, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. God's grace is the only explanation for the fact that I am a Christian and that I am able to preach the gospel. 
The very gospel that I by nature sought to destroy. And his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Not I, not, you see, even then, now he's converted. He's reflecting on uh, the product of grace, even then, as a Christian. Not I, but the grace of God. He's always exalting. He's always magnifying. He's always saying, how precious did that grace appear to me? So, too, in First Timothy chapter one, verses 13 through 16, let me read those verses again and ask you, what is he highlighting? Although I was formerly a blasphemer, persecutor and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. However, for this reason, I obtain mercy that in me first Christ Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe in him for everlasting life. What is grace, by the way? Let me just take a moment to define that. Grace is God's favor to undeserving sinners. Here's a man who deserved to die as the wages of his own sin and yet in whom the power of the gospel appeared. God saved him by grace. His favor appeared to this undeserving sinner. And that's the point that Paul is highlighting, not just not just that it was grace to save him, but how grace operates. It doesn't come to those who are worthy, but to those who are unworthy. Part of what Paul realized after his conversion was how unworthy he was. He speaks of himself this way as he magnifies grace. So he speaks of himself as the least of the apostles and the least of the saints, a most miserable sinner. The chief of sinners. That he persecuted the church he never got over. And just as John Newton never got over those slave ships. Yet how this magnified at the same time in his own eyes the grace which saved him and which appeared in him. And which through him saved many others. That God would use him to display his own power to save So obviously, God's grace, number three, in saving him, humbled him to the dust. I said that this morning. I'll say it again. Grace humbles us to the dust. And if it doesn't do that, well, then we don't understand it. We don't know what grace is. Grace does not puff up man. It destroys him. It shows him his entire lack of worth. It causes him to magnify another and not himself, even Jesus Christ. In Paul's case, once a proud Jew, a Pharisee of Pharisees, now calling himself the least of all the saints and the chief of sinners, a man who was truly, uh, truly humbled by the grace of God. Do you notice how often in speaking of grace, he says boasting is excluded? Why does he say that? Because he was a man who was given to boasting by nature. He was proud of who he was. He was proud of his heritage. He was proud of his obedience that he rendered unto the law. As to the law, blameless. You can read what he says of himself in Philippians chapter 3. Here is a man, according to nature in his former life, who was boasting in himself. He was boasting in his heritage. He was boasting in the law. And yet along came grace into his life. Jesus came to him and said, I am Jesus. And from that moment on, he ceased to boast in himself. He ceased to boast in anything but in God. 
In fact, you might say that God kept him humble. God gave him no reason to boast. He taught him over and over the value of his grace, its power and human weakness. He reflects upon this in Second Corinthians chapters 11 and 12. The thorn which was placed in his flesh. Why? So that he wouldn't become elated, so that he would not begin to boast. He had to feel, as we all have to feel, our own weakness. But the lesson is not just that we need to be humbled, but that in our uh, humiliation and in our weakness, God's power is perfected. That's the lesson, the grace of God. And so in a sense, you could say, well, he learned it in his conversion, but he was always learning it. That was always the lesson that Paul, that Paul was learning, and it was always the lesson that he was teaching. The grace of God humbles guilty sinners to the dust. But then... I could also say nothing so sped him on in his zeal to preach the gospel to others than his own conversion. Nothing so convinced him of the power of God to save uh, to save than its power to break his own stubborn, sinful heart. Yes, and if God could save me, he could save anyone. Really, that ought to be all of our conviction. If God could save someone as sinful of me, I know that he can save others. I know he can save that stubborn relative. Or friend, I know he can save my worst enemies because he saved me. And if grace hasn't taught you that lesson, if it hasn't taught you to speak like that, well, then keep learning. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter one, I'm a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and unwise. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. He says, I'm compelled to do this. I, I, I it's it's my great Life's work and nothing can stop me now. And so it's clear also that this is what gave him not just such tremendous zeal, but also such a strong sense of calling. We notice the apostle speaking of being bound to his task. I just read that I'm a debtor, he says, I'm obliged to do this. I have I have no freedom in the matter. I'm not free to do otherwise. He'll say in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. Necessity has been laid upon me. And obviously he's mirroring what Jeremiah himself said. I must preach the gospel. I'm constrained to do it. I'm bound. I'm a slave. Not unhappily, yet not free to do otherwise. Let me read to you how he puts it. And let me just notice in light of that how grace constrains us. For I for if I preach the gospel, he says, I have nothing to boast of. Again, there's the theme for necessity is laid upon me. Yet, yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel for if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have been entrusted with a stewardship. So often he speaks that way. I, I say again, not unhappily. It's not as though he didn't want to do this. And yet, not willingly. It wasn't a matter of his will. In other words, it was a matter of God's. And that's what conversion begins to clarify. And more and more as sanctification occurs in the Christian life. That the preeminent thing now in our life is the will of God. Lord, what would you have me to do? That's what the convert is always asking. And it's, an, it's a question that God is always answering. So, too, do we see the seed sown here of what later became his mighty theology of the church? Let me say something about that, too, here. You remember what Jesus says to Saul. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? As though to say very obviously in persecuting the church, you're per persecuting me. 
Well, this is something that later becomes a full-blown theology and ecclesiology in the letters of Paul. You see, when Christ said, why are you persecuting me? A conviction began to be formed in his heart of the vast importance of the church in relation to Christ, in relation to the gospel and grace. What Paul realized was that to know Christ was to be brought, which is to say to be converted by grace, was to be brought into the company of the saints. And for the rest of his life, Paul was laboring for the good of the church. But the last thing, and with this I close, it was Paul's conversion that knit his heart in love and devotion to his Lord Jesus Christ. He whom he formerly hated now he loved. That was the greatest lesson of all. And that's the thing that, that uh, bursts forth in all of his sermons and all of his letters. It's that this man loved Jesus Christ. This man prized Jesus Christ. And he loved to serve his master. He became on that day, more than anything else, a man who was devoted to Christ. A slave of Christ. Christ now became to him the prize the one thing or the one person uh, worth forsaking all others, if only and, 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 and all else, if only he might obtain Christ and know Christ. That was, as he says, if you go on in Philippians three, the great goal of his existence. Knowing Christ. Forsaking all others, if only I might be found in him. And his ministry to others was equally informed by that same thing, that he might be formed in us. My little children, how I labor over you until Christ is formed in you. Uh, Galatians chapter four, verse 19. That's a kind of uh, summary of Paul's ministry, not just that he would know Christ, but that you would know Christ and that you would be found in him and that he would be formed in you. Lives which were conformed to Jesus Christ, disciples, indeed, true converts. Men and women who, like him, knew and prized and were found in Jesus. Well, that's the value of this man's conversion that Luke is here beginning to tell us about. I'll have more to say, but that is what we see here at the beginning. This is what happened to Paul, and that's what happened to him is exactly what has happened countless times in the history of the church. And I ask you in closing. Has God done the same for you? Has he, converted to, has he converted you? Do you know anything of the experience where Jesus says, I am Jesus, and you respond, what would you have me to do, Lord? Do you know the power of his grace to transform your life, to transform your relationship to God, to transform your relationship to this world? Has God done the same thing for you? And has he used these mighty New Testament letters to change you? As he did, Saul. Amen. And let us return our praise to God by standing together and singing hymn 431. Hymn 431. Please stand.